T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome to the show, folks. In her voice message, Julie, that was the name she gave us. In her voice message, Julie identified herself as a mental health provider. That could mean any one of a number of things, but her use of the rather generic term mental health provider probably means she's not a psychologist, a clinical social worker, or a marriage and family therapist. Anyway, Julie recently called our number and left a voice message saying that she was, quote, deeply offended by my remarks concerning psychologists and mental health professionals in general. So for anyone listening for the first time or who did not hear said remarks, let me summarize. I am a psychologist. I am licensed by the North Carolina Psychology Board. Let me assure the listener, the North Carolina Psychology Board regrets the day they ever issued me a license. Why? Because I take every opportunity to inform people of what I believe to be the truth. Several truths, actually, about psychology and any form of therapy based on psychological principles. First, there is no compelling evidence to the effect that any form of mental health therapy is reliably effective. In fact, most of the research into the question of the efficacy of therapy, research done by objective people, finds that people who see therapists are as likely to report getting worse as they are to report getting better. That's about a 50-50 proposition, folks. That's not good. When you take into consideration the people who say that therapy failed to make them feel either better or worse, the odds of therapy working to someone's distinct benefit or advantage drop to about one out of three. That's not very good at all. Second, there are effectively no practice standards in psychology, meaning a therapist can call just about anything therapy and practice it. He can lead the patient in chance. Uh, and by the way, I've heard of therapists doing this. He can have the patient do relaxation exercises that you can, by the way, learn for nothing off the Internet. He can focus on the patient's childhood. He can focus on the patient's dreams. And as long as he's not engaged in intimacy with his patient, a psychotherapist can do just about anything and call it therapy. Third, studies have found that mental health professionals, generally speaking, of course, because there are exceptions to anything I say, 
But researchers have found that mental health professionals cannot reliably tell when a person is faking symptoms. Now, that means that there are no objective means by which a therapist assigns a diagnosis. In other words, a diagnosis is a purely subjective judgment on the part of a therapist. You go tell a therapist you're depressed, he diagnoses depression. You tell him you're anxious, he diagnoses anxiety. Wow! That's not what happens when a physician diagnoses a verifiable physical illness like cancer or heart disease or Ebola. In those instances, and in the instance of every single verifiable physical disorder, the disorder in question can be identified via objective means. But wait! Mental health professionals insist that disorders of thinking and emotion and behavior are caused by disturbances in a physical system that these problems are due to disturbances of a biochemical sort or disturbances in some neurological system or disturbances of a hormonal nature. That's why they call these disturbances mental illnesses. So, one is moved to ask, if these so-called mental illnesses, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, manic states, phobias, hallucinations, and so forth, are due to disturbances in physical systems, why then has no one ever been able to pinpoint these physical disturbances? Why do mental health professionals diagnose what they insist are biological problems without using any physical tests whatsoever, because they don't know what they're talking about. That's why. What comes to mind is parents who have told me that their kids have attention deficit disorder, and when I ask how the diagnosing therapist explained the problem, these parents tell me always, every single time, that the therapist said their kids' problems were due to biochemical imbalances. So then I ask, what medical test did the therapist use to make that determination? The answer, none. Right. They engage in this mumbo-jumbo about biochemical imbalances simply in order to convince people that they need to ingest, or their children need, to ingest expensive and potentially harmful psychopharmaceutical drugs, none of which have ever reliably outperformed placebos in double-blind clinical trials. My next objection to psychology, and remember, I am a psychologist. I know what I'm talking about. My next objection is that psychology is not a science. It's an ideology. It's a worldview. No psychological theory has ever been proven, and yet therapists continue to promote these theories as if proof is unnecessary Psychology is a set of propositions concerning human nature, none of which have ever been proven. I believe the Bible is the truth. I believe the Bible has it right where human beings are concerned. The Bible is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Therefore, I believe psychology is false, period. I believe it contains no truth at all, period. It qualifies as what Paul wrote about in Colossians 2.8. It's a deceitful philosophy based on man's own understandings and not on Christ, who proclaimed himself to be the truth, not a truth, but the truth. 
My next objection is that psychology and its propositions concerning human nature are the precise opposite of the Bible's propositions concerning human nature. Therefore, one of these sets of propositions is clearly wrong, or they are both wrong, but one thing is for certain, they are not both right. I say this because Julie said in her voice message that mental health counselors often use principles that are biblically based. Well, Julie, if they do, then they're not mental health professionals. If a counselor's approach is based strictly, not haphazardly, but completely 100% on biblical principle, then the counselor is a biblical counselor, not a mental health counselor. Which is to say, if you feel the need to talk to somebody about a personal problem or a relationship problem you're dealing with, I recommend you talk to a biblical counselor, not a psychologist, not a clinical social worker, Not a marriage and family therapist, a biblical counselor, not a person, by the way, who calls himself a Christian psychologist, because those folks believe it's possible to mix psychology and Christianity and come up with something good. No, folks. If you mix a drop of poison into 12 ounces of pure water, the water is now poisonous. That's a summary of what made Julie deeply offended. I am, I realize, offensive to some people, and I make no apologies for it. I'm in good company after all. And that's my rant of the day. Our number, if you'd like to join the show with a question or a comment, is 404-419-6499. We'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. It's called Because I Said So, and I'm your host, John Roseman. Our number, if you'd like to join the show, is 404-419-6499 with a parenting question or a comment about the show. And right now, we do, in fact, have a caller on the line. Her name is Rose, and she lives in Ohio. Rose, how are you doing, and how can I help you? Oh, great. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, yeah, so my question has to do with uh, video games. We've got a 14-year-old son who has been um, had an issue with being addicted to the video games, and so we took them away for a while. Um, he also did some inappropriate things. Um, somehow our credit card was tied to the account, so he ended up charging lots of money on our credit card from... These video games, I don't quite understand how that all works, actually. But um, so anyway, so he hasn't had them for a while. And we do kind of live actually on the outskirts of the city, so we're a little bit rural. And, you know, he doesn't really have a whole lot of friends he can get together with here. Um, he's playing. We homeschool, but um, he did make the local school basketball team, so he's been playing basketball, and the kids on that team all play Xbox online. So they're all saying, oh, we want to play with you online. And, um, you know, so he's kind of bugging us to give him his privilege back to play the video games um, on the weekends only. Um, So anyway, we're just, and we've had some other issues of just disrespect and disobedience with him, so we kind of sort of said, okay, if you 
can go a week without being disrespectful and disobedient. We will let you have them back this next weekend. Well, the very first day, pretty much, he was disrespectful um, because it's kind of a pattern. So technically, he doesn't really deserve it back this coming weekend. But in general, it's an issue because he... He claims, you know, this is what all the boys his age do. This is how they relate. They communicate online, you know, while they're playing the game and sure, kind of how sure. they get to know each other. Rose, let me ask you this. What, what, what did you mean by technically he's not going to get the game back this weekend? We told him we would give him another chance if he, during this week, could be good and not be disrespectful or disobedient because it's like a daily issue of him saying disrespectful things to us or not obeying us the first yeah, but, time. But wait a second, Rose. You told him he had to go for a week without disrespecting you in order to play the game on the weekend. He disrespected you day one. And so what you've done is you've rolled things back and you've said, okay, if you cannot be disrespectful in the next six days or what, what four days, you can have the game back on the weekend, right? Right. Okay. Well, now, what if he disrespects you day one again? Are you going to make this three days? No, um, because it's he has to go the whole week without being disrespectful and disobedient to get the games that weekend. He's already blown this coming weekend, so now he has to go this week and next week in order to get that following weekend's video game privilege. Okay, well, it seems like you're, you're trying to fight fire with fire here. In, in other words, you've got two problems on your hand. Yeah. And you're trying to juggle these problems. One is his disrespect, and the other is his addiction to video games. He's clearly, from what you told me, what you told me, addicted to video games. He displays a, a whole host of addictive behaviors. He lies to you about the games. He stole money from you to play the video games. Uh, you indicated in an email that you sent me that he was getting up at all hours of the night to play while you were sleeping. Um, this is clearly addictive behavior. And it sounds to me, and this is the one problem, it sounds to me as though he has shifted his approach to trying to uh, reinstate video games into his life from this very rebellious approach to the approach of trying to con you into giving him video games back by playing somewhat of the role of victim. That, in other words, if you don't give me the video games back, I won't have a social life because this is what all the kids are doing. I'll be the kid without any friends because everybody's playing video games. I'll be alone. Poor, poor, pitiful me. And this is what happens with addicts. This is what addictive behavior drives. Specifically, it drives sociopathic behavior. And this is what you're describing. The lying, the cheating, the stealing, the getting up at all hours of the night and now the playing the victim and uh, trying to convince you that his entire life is going to be destroyed unless you give him back something that he is clearly addicted to. 
All right. Now, taking that one issue, my strong encouragement to you is don't give him back the video games. He's an addict. It's clear that he is an addict. That's not going to change. If you let him play on the weekends, my prediction would be that he is going to slowly but surely go back to lying, deceiving, stealing, staying up all night, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, He is an addict. He's going to be an addict. And you're not going to cure his addiction by only letting him play on the weekends, Rose. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know if you treat it the same as you would a drug addict or an alcoholic and where they need to stay away forever from that item. So, um, and, and I know it's something that where this could just turn into a different addiction, you know. Um, there's other things that he could turn to if he doesn't have this. So, Well, he could turn into a full-blown sociopath as a result of this. I mean, for one thing, and... Um, I, I've dealt with this with uh, in a book of mine called The Diseasing of America's Children. There's an entire chapter in the book. Uh, the book, uh, I wrote it with a very well-known, nationally known, nationally respected behavioral and developmental pediatrician, Dr. Bose Ravenel out of, out of uh, High Point, North Carolina. And um, uh, he and I researched the book for 10 years before we wrote it. We have an entire chapter in there about video games, their addictive nature, the fact that they uh, have an effect on brain function that shortens attention span, interferes with problem-solving skills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would strongly recommend that you get the book, even if you only get it through your local library, and uh, read that chapter Okay. because um, it'll uh, give you a lot of helpful information. The other thing that I have to say is that I've talked to a lot of parents, and I mean more than I can count, parents of young men, it's always men, in their late teens, early 20s, who are complete, unrepentant video game addicts. These kids are living at home, oftentimes in their parents' basements. They're Uh, lazy, irresponsible, they're not employed. If they do get a job, they lose it very quickly. Video games uh, occupy 99% of their brain space. Um, I am completely opposed to these diabolical machines and uh, strongly encourage you to just uh, take the video game, uh, throw it in a dumpster at least 10 miles from your house and inform your son there will never be a video game in his life again as long as he lives with you. I, I would end this issue that way. Uh, I guarantee you, Rose, if, uh, first of all, my guess would be that not all of the other boys are playing video games, that there are some who are not. And uh, secondly, that he can make friends with these boys and figure out ways of uh, interacting with them without video games if he is so motivated. Now, the other issue is his disrespect. Uh, Tell me what form that takes. Just being very mouthy, saying um, mean, um, mean things to us. He claims he's joking, and I've told him that... Um, that is not, we don't consider it joking. Um, we don't appreciate it. Um, and 
you know, it's wrong, and and so we're not going to take it as a joke. We take it as disrespect. And, of course, then you got the disobedience, too, where you tell him to do, to do something, and he doesn't do it the first time. And, you know, you might say it again. It might take three times, and he still isn't doing it. He's doing something else. So it's both. Okay. Well, we've got about two and a half minutes in this segment left, and uh, I, I'm limited in the amount of... Uh, helpfulness I can provide in two and a half minutes. So at the risk of sounding self-promotional, I'm going to recommend another book to you. It's called The uh, The Well-Behaved Child, Discipline That Really Works. I want you to read the entire book, but I want you to especially pay attention to the section on kicking children out of the Garden of Eden is what I put it, is the way I put it. And um, what that involves is simply sterilizing the child's room. He comes home one day and there is nothing in his room, no electronics, no toys, no playthings, no entertainment value in his room whatsoever. And you simply tell him, this is the way you're going to live until, and you make a list of the sorts of disrespectful comments that he makes. And you say, until these disrespectful comments and your disobedience have ceased For a period of at least three weeks, uh, you are not getting these things back. Yeah, unfortunately, he doesn't have anything. He has nothing. He has no cell phone. Of course, he doesn't have the video games we talked about. The only thing that he has access to, he does have a computer because we homeschool, and, you know, he has to do some of his work on the computer. So, But it's not in his room. He doesn't have a TV in his room, so he has nothing really in his room. What about basketball? What about what? How about taking basketball away from him? Well, because he's on a team, and I guess I kind of feel like then you're affecting his team because he's a player they count on. Okay, well, if I were in your shoes, my priority would be your son and his behavior, not the team. What I would advise you to do is read the two books that I recommended, The Diseasing of America's Children and the Well-Behaved Child. You're going to get a lot of good ideas from both books, and The Diseasing of America's Children is going to flesh out the issue of video game addictions uh, very, very well. Um, I'm John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. You can call us at 404-419-6499. We'll be back in a moment right after this break. American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome back to the show, folks. John Rosemond, your host, and the show is called Because I Said So. And if you want to learn more about uh, my ministry, which includes books, a nationally syndicated newspaper column, and um, frequent public speaking all around the country, you can go to johnroseman.com. Uh, my most recent book is uh, Grandma Was Right After All, in which I take the top 25, or what I consider to be the top 25, parenting aphorisms of a bygone era. 
the era that, in fact, yours truly was brought up in, the 1950s and early 1960s. And uh, I talk about uh, aphorisms like children should be seen and not heard because I said so. I knew if I gave you a long enough rope, you'd hang yourself and things like that. Things that parents used to say to children in the glory days, the halcyon days of child rearing back then. And um, because these these aphorisms have been demonized mostly by the mental health community uh, who have claimed en masse that uh, the way parents used to speak to children was abusive, psychologically harmful, et cetera, et cetera. And they tend to use these aphorisms as examples because I said so and so on and so forth. Uh, what I've done in the book, and the title of the book again is Grandma Was Right After All, published by the very reputable Christian publishing house, Tyndale in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, what I have done in the book is take these 25 aphorisms and explain what they really meant. We don't talk like this to children anymore. We don't say to children, because I said so. I have parents come up and go, John, is it really okay to say because I said so to a child? Uh, people don't understand that um, saying to children, you're going to be seen and not heard in this room, was a positive thing to say to children. What it meant was uh, when you're in this room with adults who are holding conversation, it's right and proper for you to pay attention to what we're saying and not do anything to attract attention to yourself. You can be seen, you can stay in the room, but you are not to inject yourself into an adult conversation. And, and more than that, the meta meaning of that, if you will, was that there was a clear boundary that used to exist between adult and child culture in America. Those were truly big people. And because of that boundary, you aspired to be an adult. You were given these glimpses into adult culture, into adult society. These occasional glimpses, they, they whetted your appetite and you, uh, you wanted to be an adult and you couldn't wait to grow up, which is why in 1970, the average age of emancipation for the male in America, by the way, in 1970, that was what, 45 years ago, was between the 20th and 21st birthdays. And it's very significant to note that today, the average age of emancipation is approaching 28. And people say, well, but, you know, for males, by the way. And uh, we, we've actually uh, uh, worked our way into a situation where women are emancipating at a younger age and more successfully than men. And people say, well, John, it's the economy. There's no jobs. And I, no, no, no. Because that figure was approaching 28 before the economic collapse of year 2008. Anyway, Grandma was right after all. Tyndale Publishers, great group to work with. And uh, all of this, you know, leads up to something that I discovered recently by uh, surfing the Internet, chasing down information. And one of the things I discovered is that uh, the percentage of Christian kids who leave or renounce their faith after going to college is actually, I mean, it's startling. The actual number 
varies depending on the reporter, but it's somewhere between 60 and 75%. And the most frequently advanced reasons for this are that, uh, A, Christian youth pastors are more focused on being liked by teenagers than on discipling them. And uh, church teen groups have become social clubs uh, as opposed to places where teens go and their faith is strengthened. And by the way, I've spoken to a lot of pastors about this. and They also see it as a huge problem. So that explanation makes some sense. B, the second explanation for why so many kids are going to college and renouncing their faith is that Christian parents are not really doing a very good job of discipling their kids either. Their kids see them going to church but not really living out their faith Monday through Saturday. And that goes back to the liberal charge that Christians, most of us anyway, are a bunch of hypocrites, which I think has more than a grain of truth to it, actually. Don't don't turn me off, folks, quite yet. Because the next thing I'm going to say is that hypocrisy is nothing new. It's fairly universal uh, to not only Christians, but secular people as well. It's, uh, it's just a part and parcel of our sin nature. Lip service is not a new concept. So, yeah, that makes sense, too. And then, and this is the most frequently cited reason, in college, these kids get exposed to ultra-liberal professors who, like Satan in the Garden of Eden, persuade them to eat from the tree of knowledge of humanism and relativism. And I really think all three explanations are valid to one degree or another, but I'd like to propose a fourth slightly different one, which has to do with idolatry. And allow me to flesh this out. I've been fascinated of late, fascinated, disenchanted, uh, angered uh, to some degree. And I'm not a guy who gets angry easily either. Uh, I'm a pretty even-tempered individual at this point in my life and have been ever since Christ uh, opened the door and walked in. I've been fascinated of late with the epidemic of student demonstrations taking place on so many college campuses. In case you've been on Mars for the past few months or glued to homeland reruns, these kids are protesting the fact that other students, professors, and administrators sometimes say things that make them upset. They believe they're entitled to living in a bubble where no one and no thing ever upsets them. They refer to these upsetting events as microaggressions. And college professors are now almost required to warn their students that assignments may contain something called trigger words. These are words that some students may associate with upsetting events that have happened in their lives or the lives of people they identify with even so that these students can choose to opt out of the assignments. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding at all. These students demand that colleges and universities provide them with something they call safe spaces. These are places where free speech is not allowed because free speech, don't you know, may upset somebody. And Lord knows uh, these kids must not be upset. And these kids can vote, by the way. Needless to say, they don't vote for my candidates. The more I think about it, the more convinced I become that there's a relationship between Christian kids who renounce their faith after going to college and all of these student demonstrations. Hear me out here. 
I'm not suggesting by any stretch that most of these demonstrators were raised in Christian households, nor am I suggesting that a Christian upbringing and worldview makes one irrational and permanently infantile, although there are people who think so. Anyway, here's my explanation in as much of a nutshell as I can cram it into. These kids, they're called millennials, by the way, were raised by parents who made them into idols. From day one, they were the most important people in their families. Now, let me pause here because there are probably some people, and these people would undoubtedly be younger than yours truly, who may be asking, what's wrong with that? And the answer is that the most important people in a family are the people who are putting the roof over everyone's heads, paying the bills, making sure there's food on the table, and so on. And that would not be children. That would be adults. But the last 40 years' worth of parents have turned that equation upside down. Since the 1970s, children have been the most important people in their families. There's no doubt about it. These very important people have been pampered, overindulged, and under-responsibled. That's a new word I just invented. It means giving kids very little responsibility, as in chores or anything else. Most of these kids, these millennials, just sat there and were given things. Expensive things, mostly. Now, here's a fact. When you're given things and you don't have any balancing sense of responsibility, you do not appreciate what you're being given. You take it for granted. And you begin demanding more and more things, more and more stuff. And you pitch tantrums when you don't get the stuff you want or you don't get it quickly enough. These kids' parents solved all their problems, helped them with their homework, and oftentimes ended up doing it for them defended them when they got in trouble in school, assigned them very few, if any, chores, and if they did assign them, didn't enforce them. They took them on expensive vacations that only adults would have gone on 50 years ago. They told them that everything they did was great, that they were special, that they could do anything they wanted to do and other lies, and generally made them into little gods and goddesses. Now, here's a fact. If you are not able to think straight about yourself. And yes, that's what I'm saying. These kids, and it's not their fault. I am not saying it's their fault. They are not capable of thinking straight about themselves because they have not been raised by people or in a way that would instill straight thinking about themselves. If you are not taught to think straight about yourself, you are not going to be able to think straight about anything. I'm going to say that again because if I do say so myself, I'm going to play Rush Limbaugh here for a minute. I think that's brilliant. If you are not able to think straight about yourself, if you're not raised in a way that causes you to learn to think straight about yourself, you're not going to be able to think straight about anything. Are you getting a picture? And so my explanation for why so many young people who were raised in evangelical homes go off to college and quickly renounce their faith. Here it is. Who needs Jesus when you already have a perfectly acceptable God, as in yourself? When we come back, how to raise humble 
children. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show, folks. I'm your host, John Rosemond, and the show is called Because I Said So, and we're carried exclusively on the American Family Radio Network, Saturdays, 5 o'clock Central Time. Our phone number, 404-419-6499. That's 404, and some people have told me that's not 404, it's 404, John, get it right. So 404-419-6499. You can call us anytime, night or day. The show is pre-recorded, And so what we do is you call us, we call you back, we schedule a time when we're going to record a segment with you. And we call you on that date and time, and we go from there. So uh, give us a call. We've had a lot of interesting calls from people who have questions about their children general childering questions, and we've even had some calls and really great calls from people who have just comments about what they've heard on the show. A little bit of my history, I accepted Christ a bit late in life. I was about 50 years old, and uh, I finally uh, stopped my battle that I was I was waging with Christ and um, admitted that I needed a Savior in my life. And did that when I was about uh, 50 years old, as I said. And at that point in time, I, I began to feel that I was being called to a ministry. And part of that ministry uh, materialized in the form of a book titled Parenting by the Book. Parenting by the Book, which to God's glory is being used as a study group platform in churches all over the United States. And... Um, in the course of writing the book, uh, I, I was reading scripture and coming to grips with all kinds of things about myself and just humanity. And um, so what I'd like to talk about during this segment is, is something that uh, a parent asked me recently. She came up to me and I, I'd given a talk on scriptural child rearing. And she said, uh, John, you, you talked about humility and you talked about the need to raise humble human beings. Uh, can you be a little more specific about that? And we were uh, taking a break in a seminar, actually. So I came back and I talked at uh, a greater length about it. And here's what I said. That, uh, first of all, we need in America today to really understand what the word humility means. Uh, humility, the idea, the... the uh, the discussion about humility in America, uh, it virtually disappeared as the virus of high self-esteem infected America in the 1960s and early 70s. And as a consequence, a lot of folks today, and especially young folks, people uh, under the age of uh, 40, especially, that's an, a rather arbitrary date I just pulled out of my head, but people under the age of 40, I would say, uh, believe that humility is synonymous with shyness, with being an introvert, but that's really not true at all. Humility is a biblical value that Jesus referred to fairly often, as in those who exalt themselves will be humbled and the humble will be exalted. 
And in fact, it's probably safe to say that humility is the centerpiece of a godly character. A person who's consciously striving every day to live his life according to the Ten Commandments would qualify as humble. The humble person loves God with all of his heart and loves his neighbor at least as much as he loves himself. Humility, not a lousy feeling about oneself, is the true opposite of high self-esteem. If you need convincing, ask yourself, who had higher self-esteem, Hitler or Mother Teresa? That's right, Hitler did. High self-esteem carried to its logical end point is dangerous, it's malignant, it's the stuff of pure evil. And by the way, the latest research clearly confirms what I just said. America's experiment with high self-esteem has been a disaster. It's given us, and I'm going back here to what I was talking about in the last segment, entitled crybaby millennials who believe that they deserve safe spaces and to be warned about trigger words and are all ruffled about things that they call microaggressions. The latest research also finds that people with very high self-esteem are prone to fairly frequent episodes of depression, of feeling really lousy about themselves. Why is that? That seems almost paradoxical. It's because the secular humanist notion that you're really great and wonderful is a bald-faced lie, like everything else about secular humanism, by the way. It's an illusion, or more accurately, a delusion, that can only be maintained with lots of effort. But every once in a while, reality is going to break through, and that reality is that you're a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. And at that point, the person with high self-esteem goes sliding downhill. People with high self-esteem don't need God. They have themselves. Humility, simply defined, is an attitude of service. People with high self-esteem want you to pay attention and do things for them, and they can't get enough of either. Humble people, on the other hand, pay attention to you and look for opportunities to do things for you. In relationships, people with high self-esteem are manipulative, controlling. Humble people are the foot washers of the world. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he was modeling perfect humility for them. You know, I'm reminded of one of the exercises I put my... uh, audiences through very frequently. I will ask an audience, uh, raise your hand if you believe high self-esteem is a good thing and we should do everything we can to help our children acquire it. And I do this fairly early on in a talk so that uh, I already haven't cued people as to what the correct answer is. Raise your hand if you believe high self-esteem is a good thing. And parents should do everything they can to help children acquire it. And in an audience of, I don't know, 300 people, 250 people will raise their hands. And then I say, all right, I'm going to put you through a little thought experiment. You're buying a house in a new town. You're moving to a new town. You hire a realtor to take you around and show you houses. You describe to the realtor what kind of neighborhood you'd like to be in. You describe to the realtor 
what uh, type of house would be suitable for you. And she drives you into a certain neighborhood. And this neighborhood has uh, mature trees and sidewalks, and there are kids riding their bikes and people out on their lawns uh, talking to their neighbors. And it just seems like a very relaxed and friendly place. And you look uh, at your realtor and you say, gosh, this is exactly the kind of neighborhood we had in mind. This is like a dream come true. Are there any houses in this neighborhood that uh, would be suitable for us? And she says, well, there in fact are. There are two. I've already done the research. And um, I've uh, discovered that if you buy the one house, and the two houses are fairly equivalent, by the way. If you buy the one house, you'll be living next door to a person with very high self-esteem. If you buy the other house... You'll be living next door to a person who's humble and modest. And then I say to the same audience who just raised their hands, almost all of them, to true or false, high self-esteem is a good thing. We should do everything we can to help our children acquire it. Raise your hand if it's true. I ask that same audience, raise your hand now if you would say to the realtor, oh, we want to live next door to the person with high self-esteem, no one has ever raised a hand. And then people start laughing. And, you know, from one perspective, that is funny. But from another, it's rather tragic that we've bought into, at an intellectual level, the idea that high self-esteem is a good thing. But when asked a question that forces people to get in touch with common sense, what's written on their hearts, everybody suddenly realizes, no, no, no. When you put high self-esteem up against humility, humility wins every single time. Well, I'm going to propose what I hope is obvious. The world would be a much, much better place if everyone had a foot washer's humble heart. So back to my original theme, how to raise a humble child, a child who will honor God and make America a better place. I have three simple suggestions. First, read and discuss the Bible to and with your child every day. Make Bible reading a daily habit in your family. Number two, teach your child good manners. Spend more time, in fact, teaching good manners than you spend doing anything else except reading and discussing the Bible. And third, from the time a child is three years old on, require that he do regular, as in daily household chores. Chores teach a child that there is no such thing as a free lunch and teaches him that in relationships, relationships only work if there's give and take. Numbers two and three, teaching good manners and having children do chores are essential to making Proverbs 22.6 a centerpiece of your parenting, training up a child in the way he should go. Folks, the program's called Because I Said So. I'm John Roseman. We can be heard every Saturday at 5 Central on the American Family Radio Network. My producer, Rich Rosel, producer extraordinaire. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, more of the same sort of incorrectness as I dispense every single week. Remember, our number is 404-419-6499. You can call us anytime with your questions or comments. More information is available on my website at johnroseman.com. 
Next week, make plans to join us again at the same time, 5 o'clock Central on Saturday afternoon. Why? Because I said so. From Creative Genius Productions and the American Family Radio Network.